So good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to the Center for the Study of World Religions. Uh, we are not the official sponsor of this uh, session today, but we're very happy to have this event take place here in the Common Room, where so many great events have taken place this year. Uh, so we're very happy today. I'm Frank Clooney, the director of the Center at the moment, and I'm um, very happy to have the second of our Begruen Fellows make a presentation. Um, Eliza Griswold made a very fine presentation last week, and today we're happy to have our uh, second uh, Bergruen Fellow, Anna Sun, make a presentation. And she'll be talking about the logic of prayer in contemporary China, uh, which is also related to her research project for the year. So to introduce her briefly, Anna Sung has a PhD in sociology from Princeton University, which followed on her uh, BA from University of California, Berkeley. She is a sociologist of religion and culture and associate professor, professor at Kenyon College in Ohio. Uh, her research focuses on the revival of Confucianism in contemporary China, ethnographies of prayer life in different Chinese traditions, and theoretical and methodological issues in the social scientific study of East Asian religions. Uh, her book, her book, her first book, Confucianism as a World Religion, Contested Histories and Contemporary Realities, which came out in 2013 from Princeton, was honored with the first best first book prize in the history of religion from the AAR, mm -hmm. and also won other awards, including a distinguished book from the Sociology of Religion section of the American Sociological Association. I mean, I myself, I could add personally, was very interested in the book because although I'm not at all a China expert, I'm always um, watching out for the Jesuits in Asia. <laughs> and there was a previous book on the, uh, the manufacturing, the invention of Confucianism, Lionel, Lionel Jensen, I believe is the name, who basically said the Jesuits kind of made up the whole thing uh, in the 17th and 16th century. But the larger issue that um, Anna is dealing with is this very idea of a world religion appropriate to raise in the center for the study of world religions. What does it mean that something is or isn't the world religion, and how does it become one? I'm happy to say that we'll have a, a parallel presentation next Tuesday. One of our own uh, fellows here, Sasha Degani, uh, marking the 200th anniversary of the birth of Bahula, the founder of the Baha'i tradition, uh, has also talked here already, and maybe we'll bring it up next week, on is the Baha'i tradition a world religion or not? So it's a very timely topic in the book. Um, to say a little more about Anna and then turn it over to her, she's uh, involved in many uh, projects, including two Templeton Foundation projects, the empirical study of religions in China and the pursuit of blessed happiness in contemporary China, search for well-being, purpose, and the good life. She's also currently co-chair of the Chinese Religions Group at the AAR and the former chair of the board of directors of Asia Network, which is a consortium of 160 North American liberal colleges with Asian studies program. So this year, while she's been here as a fellow, um, her project is the social life of prayer, contemporary China and beyond. I think we'll be hearing about that in her lecture. So let us welcome Hannah. Thank you so much, Frank, for the very generous and warm uh, introduction. Um, I wish also to thank Dean Hampton for hosting me here at the Divinity School, and also for the wonderful people in Dean's office, and I see Karen and two Matthews <laughs> here, um, and others, and also um, um, uh, colleagues and students also at the Divinity School with whom I've had many conversations. And I, I, I want to give a special shout out to the Center for the Study of World Religion, which makes me truly feel at home, and thank you for this beautiful <laughs> mug for coffee. <laughs> So as, um, as Frank mentioned, I'm trained as a sociologist of religion. And as a scholar who studies empirical social reality, my goal is really to see religion clearly, which is not as easy as it sounds. Because to see clearly means we have to understand the construction of theory, the history of it, the usage of it, the many baggages, political and otherwise, behind theoretical concepts. And we also need to see through methods. We need to be able to see social reality systematically. So we don't simply see. We see through concepts and methods. And sometimes we cannot see. 
this brings to mind uh, something attributed to Collingwood, um, who said that uh, we call the dark ages dark, not because it's really dark, it's because we cannot see. So my topic today of, um, 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 of my uh, topic of my uh, presentation is the logic of prayer in contemporary China and uh, towards a theory of ritual rationality. My main concern is really how to see Chinese religion clearly. Are there things we cannot see? So my argument, in fact, is yes, there are many things we cannot see because of the limitations of the concepts we use. In order to see clearly, we have to think differently, conceptually, as well as methodologically. So here's a roadmap. The matter of methods and data, the matter of theory, the matter of the measurement, measurement of reality, the matter of reality, the matter of ritual rationality, the matter of the consequences of measurements, and conclusion, China and beyond. This will all make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I have been involved in several um, uh, uh, large-scale empirical projects, as Frank mentioned. So I was involved in uh, this survey called the Spiritual Life of, Chi of Chinese Residents Survey. Uh, it, ha it was um, an, a face-to-face -face interview of 7,000 people in 56 different sites all over China, conducted in 2007. And this is arguably the best data set on Chinese religious life today. Um, the second project I was involved in is a Confucian revival in contemporary China. I conducted ethnographic work in 15 Confucius temples in China and three in Taiwan and several in Japan as well. And this went into my first book. Um, I, last year, I, um, I was involved in a survey called the Meaning of Good Life and Happiness Survey. And this involved face-to-face -face interviews of 2,500 people in China. And the latest project I've been involved in is a social life of prayer project. I have conducted ethnographic work on prayer in over 20, actually more than 20, about 30 religious sites now in urban China. I've done over 120 interviews and many, many hours of observations, which took place in sacred sites of different religious traditions, from Buddhist, Taoist, to Confucius temples, to Catholic and Protestant churches, to mosques and local shrines. So it cross, it's really cross-board. So that's a book um, um, Frank showed you. But I wanted to show you the, um, the, 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 the page um, um, right um, um, inside the book. That's the very first page, where there are three quotations as mottos for the book. I want to read you the last quotation. This is from Welford Kenwell Smith from his uh, seminal book, The Meaning and of Religion. Um, I have not found any formulation of a named religion earlier than the 19th century. Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, Confucianism. We may simply observe once again the question, is Confucianism a religion? Is one that the West has never been able to answer and China never able to ask? It seems very fitting to revisit Smith's um, um, ideas because first, uh, this really very much influenced my first book and my current project. And also, he was one of the first directors of this center. So I'm honored to be speaking here. So these are some of the sites I have uh, conducted interviews at in Shanghai and Beijing. Um, my main sites are Shanghai, Beijing, and to a lesser degree, Hong Kong. But for those of you who know China, you probably recognize um, some of the places. So these are churches, temples, mosques, including um, actually a woman's mosque in urban Shanghai. The matter of theory. So as a sociologist, I want to say that before I outline um, my theoretical framework, I want to say a few words about what it is not about. It is not about institutional aspects of religious life, i.e. the foci are not the temples or churches or mosques, even though institutions are important actors in religious landscape. It is not about religious organizations. There are both formal and informal religious organizations in China, and they play vital roles in the revival of religious life. And it is not about the politics of religion per se, even though religious life is always interconnected with political life. In the case of China, it is especially important to take into account the role of religious policies of the state, for they greatly affect the development of religious institutions or organizations. I also want to stress that what I'm giving you is not an individualistic account of religious life, but an account of religious life as experienced by individuals. Because that's an important distinction. I want to just very quickly lay out the current debates and challenges in the social scientific study of religion. The challenges of the new atheists, 
who claim that religious knowledge is, um, um, who think of religious knowledge as objective truth, and they argue that, of course, um, this, such beliefs are no objective facts. Um, there are no objective evidence. There is no objective evidence for the existence of God, etc. I call this the epistemological challenge regarding religious truth claims. There is also the post-colonial challenge to the very concept of religion. Religion as a concept and a particular understanding of spiritual life is a Western invention based primarily on Protestant religious experience. I call this the challenge regarding the production of religious knowledge. The methodological debate about the empirical foundation of our understanding of religion, belief or practice, text or action, sincerity or ritual. This is in some ways a natural development after the post-colonial challenge to the belief-centered, Protestant-centric understanding of religion, and there has already been a practice turn in the sociology of religion as well as in the larger field of religious studies, such as the lived religion approach. Nancy Emmerman at BU, for instance, is, is an important scholar in this approach. This is what, what I call the challenge to the understanding of religion only as belief. The last challenge, I think, is the evolutionary um, dash, uh, psychological, dash, cognitive conception of religion that challenges both the essentialist and the cultural relatives' views. What are the fundamental elements that different religions may share, which is a long-term collective evolutionary consequence of religious actions? So I call this the evolutionary sociobiological challenge to religion. So amongst these challenges, I think in many ways I'm addressing the, 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 the first three implicitly, not quite the fourth one in my own work. So I propose that we need to make several theoretical interventions if we want to see Chinese religion clearly. The first is that we need to reclaim the concept of religion. Um, the solution to the challenge is not to abandon the concept of religion, but to redefine it and reclaim it. We should not equate religion with monotheistic religions, which emphasize belief, exclusive membership, and sincerity. We need to broaden the concept to include polytheistic religious life, which has a different set of priorities and components. This would allow us to speak of religion without falling back into the assumed Abrahamic religious norm of religion. Such essentialist assumptions often blind us to see the diversity and validity of lived religious experience. So as you can see, Durkheim's famous definition of religion, um, a religion is a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things. Um, beliefs and practices which unite into one single moral community called a church, all those who adhere to them. The words highlighted are the words I think we can redefine and, 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 and um, um, reclaim. Doesn't have to be unified, doesn't have to be one single community, doesn't have to be a church. So this leads to the second intervention, which is that we need a new, we need a new concept of religious plurality. The notion of syncretism, I've argued, is problematic because it still assumes an essentialist notion of religion. Syncretism is what's supposed to happen when separate religions are mixed together, like the mixing of water and wine, or water and coffee, two separate mm -hmm. substances now syncretized, but they are still separate essences. Religious plurality is not about the mixing of separate religions, but about the layering of ideas and skills from different religious traditions that coexist in our consciousness as well as in our actions. An analogy that I find useful is bilingualism or multilingualism. We also need a new concept of religious rationality, or what I call ritual rationality. So on the one hand, you have objective rationality, on the other hand, ritual rationality. Objective rationality is a simplified version of the kind of reasoning we see in scientific um, 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 work. And of course, a philosopher of science would say this is simplistic, this is pre-Kuhnian, but I want to say this is still very much sort of the standard understanding of scientific reasoning today. It says beliefs come from facts. I believe there's a cup of coffee. There's a cup of coffee. Facts have to be able to be empirically proven. It is rational to believe in facts empirically proven. Objective knowledge is about empirical reality. Ritual nationality, especially as seen in Chinese religious life, has a very different modality. First, belief does not necessarily come from facts. Ritual facts are not necessarily empirically proven. 
It is rational to engage in ritual activities without empirically proven facts. Ritual knowledge is about ritual relationships. Well, I will go into details later, especially about this aspect. And the last intervention I think we need is new measurements of religion. A new measurement centering on prayer, I argue, as the key indicator of religious action, may be able to deal with some of, if not all, the challenges we're facing when we study religious life outside of the world of Abrahamic religions. It is plausible that this methodological intervention based on theoretical reconfiguration, will not only solve certain issues in the study of Chinese religion, but also shed light on the problem we're facing when we study the religious uh, landscape that's changing globally. So I'm just quickly showing you what happens when the measurements go wrong. So the global religious landscape, um, an, uh, uh, um, a report uh, published by the Pew Research Center in 2012 says, more than Six in one of all religiously unaffiliated people live in one country, China. Um, there, are, there, are, um, there are six countries where the religious unaffiliated make up a majority of the population. If you look at China, at least 52%. And Pew is arguably one of the most cited sources in religious um, um, uh, statistics. If you look at the world's least religious countries, this is from the Washington Post and this is from Gallup. China is all red, meaning people are not religious. Um, they're either religious or, um, or atheist. If you look at the World Value Survey in 2007, the question to the question, do you belong to a religious denomination? 93.9% would say no. If you ask independently whether you go to church or not, would you say you are religious or not religious? Um, only 13.7% of the people say they're religious. That question, by the way, does not quite work in China, as you can imagine. How often do you attend religious services? Never, practically never, 89.7%. So if you look at, again, this is pure data. Um, 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 China has the most number of unaffiliated or not religious people, 20% are folk religionists, I find that term quite peculiar, um, and 18% Buddhists and 5% Christians, so This is a survey I was involved in, the Spiritual Life Study of Chinese Residents, conducted in 2007. We did use this standard question, regardless whether you go to church or temple or not, regardless of whether you go to church or temples, do you believe in any of the following? So we did ask a belief question. 78.1% say, I don't believe in anything. Um, and I highlighted Confucianism because I was working on Confucianism at the time. 12 out of 7,000 people call themselves Confucians. Uh, higher number than I thought, in fact, 0.2%. <laughs> so when we look at the definition of new religion, we look at identification, affiliation or membership, religious feeling, religious belief. But what we need is religious practice. Do people practice? This is a matter of reality. This, I'm going to show you people who are not captured through the wrong conceptual lens. So this is um, the Confucius temple in Beijing. And this is the altar from about 10 years ago when I was um, um, doing field work um, on Confucius temples. So as you can see, this is an altar um, with uh, lots of offerings, flowers, incense, fruit. This is from about three years ago. There's nothing on the outer because of the rope, as you can see, erected between the outer and the visitors. There's a donation box of money, but you have nothing there. So you think there's no ritual life in the computer's temple anymore. Go to the gift shop. So the state um, um, did not want to see too much ritual life going on inside the temple. Well, inside the main hall in the temple, ritual life takes place in the gift shop. So there are people who purchase objects for blessings. There's a picture on the left. And there are people who pray to a portrait of Confucius inside the shop. This is the Confucius temple in Shanghai with young people praying for exam success. These are prayer cards um, written with um, um, hanging on shelves with written prayers. So people write out their prayers um, to Confucius. They're also hanging on trees. 
And this is not unlike what we see in Taipei, and I just want to read you an English language one because you can see this one clearly. <laughs> Dear Confucius, let me get into one of the top law schools. I promise to give back as much as I can. <laughs> Um, and there are lots of similar prayers. This is Shanghai last year. So the Shanghai Confucius Temple now has actually more ritual life than before. And this young man in the in the red jacket is the ritual professional. He's a professional um, 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 uh, teaching people how to do rituals because a lot of the rituals are newly invented. I'll show you why. Incense burning is not newly invented. Prayer cards are. Prayer cards were first invented in the Shanghai Confucius Temple in 2004. I interviewed the person who invented it, the manager of the temple. She got the idea from, um, from a visit to, um, to uh, Japan. She got the idea from Ima. Um, so she brought it back, but she thought um, Ima is made with wood and it's too expensive to reproduce, so she made it into paper and gave it red ribbons, which is, um, which is a very um, 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 uh, favorite color of people in temples. This is a woman last year who went back to write a prayer to Confucius because her daughter did well in the exam um, for which she prayed a couple of months before. She showed me how she received prayers of blessing on her phone as texts during the days of her daughter's exam. And so she went back to thank the temple um, for the blessing and for the blessings through texts. These are the ritual objects. Um, sold in the Confucius temple, as you can see, both Buddhist ones and Confucian ones put together. When I interviewed the temple manager in Shanghai, in this Confucius temple, I saw a shrine to, wait a second, not Confucius, but the god of fortune, um, with elaborate um, offerings laid out, including wine um, and fruit and pastry, with Confucius looking enviously. <laughs> from that portrait on the floor. And all of this takes place in the Confucius temple, in the manager's office. This is a Taoist temple um, in Shanghai during one of the major Taoist um, ritual dates, um, winter solstice, in fact. And this is a family um, um, uh, praying to, um, um, to uh, a, a, a god they pray to every year. I ask them, should I pray to this god? And they said, well, our family have a relationship with this God. You don't have to. Pray to the God you trust. Mm. So I, I hope you remember that because I think that's a very important aspect of prayer life in this polytheistic tradition. It's a relationship. It's a relationship of trust. It's not about objective belief. This is um, also in the same Taoist temple. This is um, in February at midnight. So this was this was supposed to be the birthday of the god of fortune. And a very elaborate ritual was performed to celebrate his birthday at midnight in early February. Um, when my taxi driver dropped me off there, the streets were empty. He said, you must have the wrong address. It can't can be the place. And I went in, and I could hardly move. It was so packed. It was like this. Um, and I'm also going to show you a few Catholic sites. This is a, this is a famous uh, pilgrimage site in sh outside of Shanghai um, for, um, for Catholics. And, um, and this is a family um, of pilgrims um, who go to this uh, mountain every year. And people take the stations of cross very, very seriously. They spend about 10 minutes there at each station of cross, reciting long prayers. So this is a site of um, ritual life that sort of easier to see if you're looking for religion with a capital R. This is, um, this is a, the, um, um, a, a, a mosque in Shanghai. This is um, the friend of the mosque. Um, this is mostly for men. And this is the woman's mosque right next door, run by women, for women. Um, although they would bring in uh, an iman to explain the Quran, Quran with them, they have uh, activities mostly only for this is a Buddhist temple, so I'm just going to show a few more pictures uh, without too much explanation uh, during uh, the time of the Chinese New Year. These are young people who would never call themselves Buddhists, who would pray nevertheless to the Buddha. But this woman um, I interviewed is a converted um, uh, uh, Buddhist. So she has gone through the official uh, uh, conversion process, 
which accounts for very small percentage of people who do Buddhist things in China. Very small percentage of people actually go through the uh, official conversion. This is a temple in downtown Shanghai, Jing'an-si. Uh, you can see the high rises um, around it. This is a bit like um, Upper East Side of Shanghai. And inside the temple, elaborate um, um, rituals going on. This is a death anniversary ritual. This ritual is performed for this man in this picture in the, on the outer. You can see the picture on the outer. He's an engineer who passed away a year before. And his son, um, um, who is now a student in Hanover, Germany, uh, was brought back to Shanghai to lead the ceremony, even though none um, of the family members here called themselves a Buddhist. And this is an elaborate ritual that would cost about $500 to, to, to complete, uh, to, 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 to be conducted. And it lasted about six hours. This is a ceremony in a Taoist temple. I just want to draw your attention to this one particular ceremony. This is a woman doing a ritual for her unborn fetus. So it's a very special kind of uh, death ritual that only Taoist temples do. Buddhist temples do not touch it in general. And this is also a very long ritual, very costly. Um, and um, again, this woman would never call herself a Taoist, because being a Taoist really means to be, um, to be a Taoist uh, monastic. So this is part of the Taoist ceremony for the unborn fetus. These are women I, um, I, I ran into in this um, 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 Taoist temple. Um, they were exuberant. Um, um, they were chanting sutra um, um, in the, on temple ground. And I said, it sounds like Buddhist sutra. Are, are you Buddhist? They said, oh, yes, we're Buddhist. And we, are, we have this prayer group. We are, we are members of the sister prayer group. I said, you're in a Taoist temple. And he said, oh yes, but it doesn't matter. This is a great temple, any great temple will do. We visit great temples and chant sutras. So for them, it doesn't make any difference that this is actually a Taoist temple. Now I want to draw your attention to um, the kind of ritual um, activity I've been studying very intensely in the past two years, which is ancestral rites. So this is a news picture, actually, um, of, um, of a cemetery during the time of the Qingming Festival, which is early April. I was just in Shanghai for the Qingming Festival um, two weeks ago um, to observe this in Shanghai. So everyone would go to the graves of the deceased family members to bring offerings and sacrifices and pray. So this is a home altar for ancestors. This is burning um, um, spirit money, paper money, um, um, on, on winter solstice um, to send uh, spending money and winter money for winter clothes to uh, deceased family members. So I've interviewed people doing this ritual, and I said, do you actually believe they can spend the money buy winter clothes underground? Is there a bank? Um, is there a supermarket? Um, so how do your family members spend the money? And they said, why are you asking those questions? We don't ask those questions. This is your duty. You do it to bring comfort to your heart. But it's very important to do it, and to do it right. So people would draw a circle on the ground, leaving an opening, so the spirit can come in and pick up the money. And that's also, and, 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 and also you leave a few pieces of the spirit money outside of the circle, so some wandering ghost can pick it up without fighting with your own family members with the main pile of money. So it's very well, well thought out. Do people actually believe this is a rational thing, it is a rational ritual, even though there isn't a um, fact aching up everything they're saying. I'm going to show a few more pictures of grave rituals. This is um, a bank director and his family uh, bringing sacrifice uh, to the graves of, to the grave of his deceased father. This is just uh, 10 days ago in Shanghai. So I went there for the, for the date of Qingming, the festival for honoring deceased family members. This is one of about a dozen major cemeteries outside of Shanghai, in, around Shanghai. So there is an amazing um, 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 billboard that says, at 8 o'clock, there were 2,000 cars, cars and about 13,000 people in the cemetery. That's 8 a.m. And I was here at 11 a.m., so it says 11 a.m., 7,700 cars, 57,000 people. 
and people would bring food, drink, incense, candles to the graves, and um, and they would do it actually um, in good. They're not doing it in mourning. They do it almost joyously. They reestablish a relationship with deceased family members. <coughs> They're doing their uh, ritual duty. I went with actually a Christian couple, a Protestant couple, who said, well, we're Christians, so we're not supposed to do the elaborate ceremony, but we had to do it on this day, something, anyway. So they brought flowers and cleaned the, um, uh, the, the grave um, of, uh, of the father of the husband in the family. Um, the, the, both the father and uh, the mother uh, are retired bank workers. I asked, what do you do? They said, we make money. And I said, what do you mean you make money? He said, we make money at currency. So, um, and their son is an engineer. So this son remarks that, oh, with all this ins uh, paper money being burned, there must be great inflation in the end of the world. I love that point, you know, coming from that family. It actually makes sense. <laughs> so much money being produced. I have some samples to show you later if you're interested. Um, and when I interviewed each of them, do they believe their ancestral spirits? Do you think they know what you're doing? I got three different answers from them. It's on a spectrum. So the mother, who is the most devoted Christian, would say, no, there's, you know, of course they're, and they're spirits of our, of our deceased family members, but, they, but we shouldn't be praying to them. We should only pray to God and do what pleases God. I'm only here to express my respect um, and express my... my, my uh, my sense of missing them. The husband said, oh, you know, I don't know, maybe. And I do talk to him. He, he actually did pray to, that, to his father. And the son said, I don't know. Sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't. You don't have to be so clear about it. Just do what feels right. This is not an isolated um, a ritual phenomenon in China. I did this uh, research in South Korea last uh, September. In South Korea, the ritual date for ancestors uh, is not April, but September, during uh, the festival of Chosak. So this is a family um, 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 ritual ceremony for deceased um, um, family members in um, an upper middle class uh, household. Um, so as you can see, beautifully laid out um, an outer, and this this um, this little wooden um, wooden plaque is a, is is a, the tablet with the names of the deceased um, ancestors. And wine was offered, candle and incense were burned, and the door was left open so the spirits could come in mm. for the meal. So um, the patriarch led the ceremony. But the women participated as well, and I was allowed to participate. And afterwards, as you can see, there's a screen separating this part, the ritual space in the living room, from the other side of the living room. So there were sofas behind the screen. And after the ceremony, we all moved to the other side of the screen and had tea. And at one point, one of the sons um, in the family spoke loudly, and the father said, quiet. Ancestors are eating right now. You should show respect. And after half an hour or so, we came back. The altar was turned into a lunch table. And we actually dined on this beautiful feast <coughs> together with, with, um, with parts of the meal being offered outside wandering ghosts. Do people believe that the ancestors were actually eating in the living room? That is a wrong question to ask. I was told. So this is in South Korea as well. A, a, a young child is being taught how to pray to the ancestor whose picture is being taken. So I want to argue that the notion of fasting that we see in Roman religion may actually be very useful in understanding Chinese religion. There is a ritual calendar at work in China today, even in the most cosmopolitan places. So there are four major dates for ancestral rights throughout China rural areas as well as urban areas, the Chinese New Year, the Qiming Festival in April for, for, for deceased family members, um, for the, to go to the graves of the family, deceased family members, the Midsummer Ghost Festival, which is essentially a Buddhist festival, but it's, it's, it's often observed by, by non-Buddhists, and winter solstice. There's also time to send paper money to ancestors 
um, in the underworld, so they will have winter clothes. It's actually very moving, the, the rationale behind it. And there are additional ritual days. So let's go to, I'm going to talk fast, the, the matter of ritual rationality. So I think we need to focus on um, measuring religious life uh, through prayer and prayerful action. We need to think about religious life as potentially multi-religious pr prayer practice, as we see in China. People pray to different gods, deities, and different traditions. And we need a concept of ritual rationality that centers on trust rather than belief. So ritual and prayer, rituals include religious rituals and social rituals. This is very, very basic, um, as you know, and I learned a lot of this from my teacher, Robert Bella, um, um, and Durkheim, of course. Social rituals, handshake, center fellows lunch, religious rituals, prayer, and prayerful action. I'm going to skip Jim's um, um, thought and Marcel Mao's thought on prayer from 100 or so years ago. Um, um, uh, Seligman, um, Weller, Pewitt, and Simon wrote this wonderful book, Ritual and Its Consequences, um, arguing that we need to expand the concept of prayer. Um, it can be um, a performative, repetitive, subjunctive, sometimes anti-discursive and social act. Um, so prayer as a key indicator of religious life implies that prayer is an interaction between a human person and something beyond this world. It is addressed to something with the element of the otherworldly, god or goddess, spirit, ghost, or even tian in the Chinese tradition. The interaction is broadly defined. It can be formal, informal, verbal, non-verbal, in thought, in action. The interaction has to have an element of reverence, respectful, deferential. The interaction can be two-sided or even one-sided, when God talks back or when God doesn't talk back. And prayer is not about sincerity, but about intention. I will not go into the details of that. But as you can see, prayer actually connects all aspects of religious life biological and psychological embodied experience, textual and visual, sacred text, liturgy, um, and so on, material culture, institutional, social network, theological analysis. Um, so prayer is the most elementary form of religious life. It has a different locus of the supernatural in different traditions. I'll only selectively mention this. It's, about the it's not about fulfilling hopes, but performativity of hope. It is a social act to engage the supernatural, not to control it. And I also think there's less ritual anxiety in diffused and less controlled religious society. And prayer create ritual communities such as family, temple groups, or congregations. So I'm going to skip some of this and mention I'm influenced by Tom Bia, but I don't think he spells out um, the rationality in religion enough. So I want to say that several aspects are important. Ritual multilingualism. Ritual is analogous to the use of, of, of language. The salient aspects are fluency, vocabulary, accent, multilingual practice. Explicit knowledge of grammar is not essential to a native speaker of a language. The way explicit knowledge of ritual grammar is not necessary for the performance of rituals. People often speak, do rituals well without knowing the grammar. And to speak of religious multilingualism is to be multilingual um, or bilingual, um, not mixing languages, but using different languages in different settings. We may speak of bi-religiosity or multi-religiosity in similar ways. Also, one does not forget a language or religion when one requires squares, forgive me, typo, requires a new, acquires a new one, unless one is away from its context for too long. So ritual code switching is similar to the switching of a language. So I can switch to Chinese when I speak to my mother, and I'm not losing my English when I speak Chinese. The issue of mother tongue is relevant. The fluency of reach of a mother tongue is embodied and experiential both in language and religion. I also think we need to shift the, um, the focus from belief to trust and engagement. Rituals are about making connections with the divine. The key verb is not to believe in the divine, but to engage the divine. For the most part, Chinese prayers are not about belief, but about putting trust in the relationship being performed. So Chinese term xin, belief, is often translated as belief. 
信仰 ，as in 我信上帝 ，I believe in God， or I believe in 观音。The 观音菩萨萨婆。But the real meaning of 信 in prayer life is more often about having a trusting relationship with God or the gods. It's about trust, 信任 ，as in I trust my parents or my family trusts this God. So prayer is about engaging in a trustful relationship with the divine. And the gods people preach who are the ones who are trustworthy to them. And again, this is actually not excluding, say, um, a, a monotheistic practice. So in Teresa Morgan's recent book, Roman Faith and Christian Faith, she says, trust takes a shape which is culturally unique, definitive, and as distinctive as a fingerprint. And we need to understand um, how this um, shape of trust is, operate, is operated in a community. So faith is relational. And culturally and historically defined, and I also enjoyed Roman Williams' book about trust. He's really trying to understand Christian belief through trust, trusting relationship with God. Make sense of life through care and hope is another aspect of rich rationality. It engages the divine in a social relationship, which is the care for the person who is praying for, and hope in positive improvement in one's life. It is not about fulfilling hopes, but Performativity of hope, as I mentioned earlier. So uh, some of the phrases that comes um, um, comes up repeatedly in my interviews are: doing these rituals gives my heart a place to rest. To be buried in the ground properly with rituals brings peace. It gives my spirit comfort. It allows for the transfer of emotions from this world to the next. I actually find a lot of the work done in um, monotheistic traditions useful. So John Levinson's um, recent book, *The Love of God*, speaks of this relationship with God that is performative. So um, um, he speaks of he uses this concept from a sociologist, in fact, um, to say that um, we often see instrumental actions as problematic, but in fact they can be affection. They can be Um, performing, performing, performing duties as love. So the answer, Levinson says, is that those sources hold a concept of love that is more outward, action-oriented, and practical than the one that has come to dominate modern Western culture. And this, I think, is my most important discovery in my fieldwork, which is that rich rationality is not either or, but more or less. Rich rationality moves on a spectrum. And there are multiple spectrums, and configurations of these spectrums vary greatly among religious traditions. So, we can speak of the importance of a propositional belief, such as God exists. It can be very high in Christianity and Islam, can be very low in Confucianism or folk religions. The demands of the divine of the divine place on humans move from high to low. The taken for grantedness of rituals again a spectrum. The presence of scientific rationality, such as "I believe in the divine because it is real," that again is high in certain religious traditions or denominations, and low in others. And ritual practice, as um, as um, um, articulated action, I don't want to go into details. There are many different spectrums where it's not either or, but more or less. And ritual identity are composites, not entities clearly defined through belief or doctrine. Hence, the use of religious identity as an indicator of religiosity is often an impediment to understanding certain religions. So, if we look at Chinese religion differently with its new theoretical assumptions, new lens, I think we can see more clearly. In the 2007 survey we conducted, we did ask the question about retroactivity. Here we get a very different picture. Here we see that 67.6% of the people prayed on ancestors' graves in the past year. How many people who never did any ritual action, never attended? 25%. In other words, 75% of the people conducted ritual activities in the past year. In the survey we did in 2016, um, did you conduct ancestral rites during the dates, the key ritual dates in the past year? The majority of people did, who, the people who never did um, ancestral rites, and the 20%. The average time of ancestral rites in the past year, 
For urban residents, 3.6 times. For migrants, actually almost five, and about four times for rural residents. But if you ask people propositional beliefs, people switch back to scientific rationality. So they say, well, if I ask, do you think people, what happened to people after they die? People say, nothing left. About half of the people say, nothing left. There's no soul. They become a memory. So if you ask them outside of the realm of ritual, they switch back to scientific rationality. Are there ghosts in the world? More than 50% say no. And yet the same people conduct rituals at least three or four times a year. You see, there's no contradiction. That is a very important point in this um, ritual landscape. Um, do you think this divine retribution? Um, actually, a, a very high number of people say yes. And I want to end my presentation with um, what's happening in the States. So the percentage of Americans unaffiliated with religion has been rising, as you can see, from 1970s, 5% to 20% in the 2010s. By age, those young people in the room, you're more likely to have no religion. Um, about 30% um, of people under 30 say they have no religion. But how many people who never pray? Only 30%, 13% who never pray. And if you look at this type, this, 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 um, this report, it's wonderful. It's called, the nuns are becoming increasingly secular. It sounds almost like a contradiction. They're supposed to be secular, don't you think? They are not. If you look at the second column, how often do you pray? Um, 40, um, 37% pray at least monthly in 2014. So a high number of people do pray even when they say they have no religion. So China and beyond. So I've learned a lot from scholars here. So Diane Egg speaks of the polytheistic imagination, which is very much an imagination needed in the understanding of Chinese religion, of non-monotheistic religions. So I just think this is a wonderful quotation. I don't have the time to go into them all, but I want to read you the last sentence. The unity of India, both socially and religiously, is that of a complex whole. It is not separate. We need, um, 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 it is, um, we, in order to understand Hinduism, we need to have bold Hindu polytheistic consciousness. And this is where we discover one of the great myths of our own, the myth of monotheism. That is very much what I encountered in my own work. Um, um, Professor Alun Puna's work is also very uh, inspiring. And when you say that um, um, the core of the debate about uh, Yoruba religion is a failure to recognize religion is essentially pre-theoretical. It's not propositional. It's not um, um, about um, um, something discursive. It is not an intellectual enter enterprise. Um, and, and consequently, there is confusion between religion as a unique phenomenon and religion as an intellectual exercise. And I love this, this point that sacred cities exist under diverse circumstances and for given people the totality of historical myth, identity, gender, and ritual. Again, it is a complex whole. And I want to end my conversation with you with a few quotations about Hellenism in late antiquity. I'm finding great, um, actually, parallels structurally between what's happening in China today and, say, what happened in the Roman Empire in late antiquity, where, um, where um, um, polytheism and, and monotheism coexist. Uh, and Christianity had a powerful influence on the paganism that prospered in the late antique world which is the case in China as well. Christianity has been having a huge impact on how polytheistic, polytheistic religions are practiced. And I will um, end with two quotations. Jiang Scheid, who is a, a scholar of Roman religion, uh, wrote a wonderful piece called Polytheism Impossible, or the Empty Gods, Reasons Behind a Void in the History of Roman Religion. Um, so he says that um, the religious history of Rome, even the religious history of antiquity, remain for the most part under the influence of philosophy and notably the old debates on the origins and relative merits of polytheism and monotheism. Um, the very definition of this forms of religion and their place in universal history um, um, 
in short, a reference to any particular philosophical system which lies heavily in the end in the convention wildly shared by philosophers and historians that it is difficult for true religion to be polytheistic. Nothing sums up this general attitude better than this definition of Buddhism recorded in Flaubert. Buddhism, false religion of India. And Bruno Latour, um, I think, said this better than many, when he says, belief is not a state of mind, but the result of relationship among peoples. We have known this since Montaigne. Since the moderns naturally have to come up with an explanation for the strangeness of a form of worship that cannot be justified objectively, they attribute to the savages a mental state that has internal rather than external references. As the wave of colonization advances, the world up with believers. A modern is someone who believes that others believe. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Is there time for questions? A few questions. Yeah, so I guess the floor is open. Thank you for a wonderful presentation and very clear. I hope we can both sit and be proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. So the floor is open. Yes, please. I believe you said that um, early on you showed a slide of um, a ceremony being conducted for, I think you said, an aborted fetus. Uh, but why why would Buddhist temples not be interested in doing that? Because they've already always placed more emphasis on the Absolutely. So most death rituals are done in Buddhist temples. People go to Buddhist temples for, you know, funerals and and uh, death anniversary rituals. Absolutely. I think here that comes a religious market to make use of it. So it's a little niche in the religious market that Taoist temples have um, occupied early on. So they have a very elaborate, specific set of liturgy for the unborn fetus. So I've asked monks, um, 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 Buddhist monks, you know, why don't you do this? You know, they can just go to Buddhist monks and do it. So they don't have, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I need to go back and trace the history of the, the set of rituals. But at least the, the three Taoist temples I studied in Shanghai all conduct, conduct this ritual and have a set of music, you know, ritual actions and liturgy. Oh, it's clearly laid out. And Buddhist temples just don't have it yet. But you know, they might pick it up if there's a high demand. Although I doubt it's going to be high demand. Um, I hope not. Um, it's a very sad kind of location. But you remember I showed you a picture of a family of three praying to a god? Which is pray to a god to trust. That god, um, Tai Sui, the god of New Year, it's supposed to be now it's gone. But, but Buddhist temples are kicking up that ritual because it brings in more visitors, more revenue. And I, I, I had monk explaining to me why this Taoist deity is actually Buddhist deity. So it's possible. You see a lot of um, institutional exchange of rituals. Thanks so much for a great uh, presentation. So um, an argument you'll be familiar with from uh, historians and sociologists in the West that um, uh, that these other, the, the way you're defining religion is somehow contingent upon a pre-existing denominational structure or something that's, that's promoting propositional or some kind of more um, Protestant or Christian definition of religion. And, yes. and as modernity works its way through systems, and as church going and all of these, you know, um, measurable characteristics decline, so too inevitably will be, will the prayer and the, and the ritual behavior and so on, because they're somehow, um, they're somehow leftovers. Yes. Um, or, uh, which cannot be sustained indefinitely in and of themselves because they're they're contingent on something that happened before. Mm -hmm. So, um, regardless of the persuasive mm -hmm. <laughs> persuasibility of that idea, how does that map on to your um, uh, discussion here? I mean, is there um, do you see these? Um, um, uh, um, I, I, 
rituals around ancestor uh, uh, prayers and so on as things that will decline with Chinese industrialization, modernization, urbanization, and so on, these classic secular, old secularization arguments? Or do you think that they have a, a, a durability, a, a, a cultural strength that um, has been there for a very long time and will continue for a very long time, and are, is not dependent or contingent on any pre-existing set of formal religious behaviors? Does that make any sense? It makes great sense, it's a great point, and I think the latter is true. So, in other words, um, I've been doing this work for 15 years, I've been doing work in, in the field in China for 15 years. This is a revival, it's new. Mm -hmm. So we really started in the 1990s, and people in the most urban places, like Shanghai, um, are relearning how to do such rituals. So many of them did not grow up with them. They go back to the grandparents to learn how to do this. They learn from neighbors. They learn online. There was online tutorials on how to do ancestral rituals. So in fact, you're seeing um, a, a great increase, sort of decrease with economic development and technological advance. So a digital um, technology is incorporated in a lot of the promotion of the rituals. Um, that secularization thesis um, it has been very central in the sociology of religion, yeah. as you mentioned. I was having this conversation, as I mentioned, it was Linda Woodhead, uh, a sociologist of religion who uh, studies religion in Europe, especially in the UK. And I think both of us had this sense that ritual life has always been the foundation mm -hmm. of religious life. And it was sort of um, um, put away and repressed um, 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 after the Reformation. By the way, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, so it's very interesting for us to rethink this, this issue. And ritual life is coming back, especially amongst people who say they're not religious. Mm -hmm. Linda has been following groups um, in the UK who do ritual actions, who don't belong to any particular religious group. They don't have an identity as a Buddhist or as a Hindu, but they do all kinds of rituals and what makes them together. So um, one could argue that the deep, deep foundation of ritual life is a search for meaning, um, is a search for, uh, for um, uh, connection and trust and hopefulness. So that will never go away. And I think modernity, in, if anything, is helping us develop new creative ways to pray, as you can see from the prayer texts. Mm -hmm. So if anything, I'm seeing an increase of this, rather than decrease in China. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, quite, uh, quite fascinating. Uh, two questions there. Um, the, uh, I'm sure you are familiar with the conversations and the debate on uh, the use of the word spirituality as opposed to religion. Um, the idea that uh, in today's world many are saying that they are spiritual, they are not religious, that is, they don't belong to any institution of religion. Um, so this will take me to the data that you collected. Uh, it seems to me that at the time you were, of course, interviewing them, you didn't really separate the Buddhists from the, uh, the Confucianists. Mm -hmm. So that shows that it is going to be very difficult to know whether they are reacting to your questions from the Buddhist perspective or from the non-Buddhist perspective. And what is the effect of that on your on your finding? And the second question, uh, I mean, the comment and the question is that I remember that in the seventies and the early eighties, uh, Ninian Smart's book became very popular in the teaching of religion. Precisely, I think he was maybe the first historian of religion to encourage the use of the word worldviews, religious worldview, rather than religion, as we used to define it. And so that allowed uh, him to bring into the vocabulary and the conversation uh, things like uh, you know, Confucianism. Even be before the word me started popularizing uh, Confucianism as a religion. Uh, and so that became, and people were talking about a secular worldview, as having similar <coughs> integrity as any religious institutions. 
Oh, and you grab with your sister. All right. So, um, I think the notion of um, British worldview um, is precisely what I'm trying to stay away from. So I want to think about religion from the other side, from practice and from action. Um, so if we look at religious life as practice, as action, primarily, and try to understand the meaning of it, starting from action, then it actually doesn't matter if someone is speaking to me as a Buddhist or as a Confucian. And it's also because most of people don't have those clearly defined identities. Mm -hmm. Scholars have argued that many Chinese people, if they're not Christians or, or, or Muslims, or if not officially converted Buddhists, they are simply people in the Chinese religious system. And that's how I see it. I really see this different ritual life forming mm -hmm. an ecological whole. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes speak of the religious ecology, ecological system of China. Um, so in that case, those identity questions um, don't help us as much as in the case of monotheistic um, um, beliefs. Um, so I, I hope I asked the uh, last question. Yes. Uh, last question then, yes, please. Yes. So uh, uh, in the representation of the rituals, you emphasized, uh, you know, especially non-rationalization, non just you know, doing it as a practice. Uh, do you think that's uh, a, a beautiful, you know, engagement with the cells just to stopping to rationally think or critically think, especially as in David's question, as we are, you know, becoming more critically thinking about everything uh, and taking the religion as, you know, something in the domain of, you know, the Critically thinking on you know, the beliefs and everything. In that sense, uh, and you also you mentioned that you think that as you go for time, people will be engaged with more ritual activities, right? In that case, how that in this as an individual in that in the practice of the ritual, how does that interaction yeah. happen? That's a great question. So that's really the where the idea of religious multilingualism um, works. Code switching. So um, you start speaking a different language. So you may be an engineer. I interview engineers, bank managers, and, and, and business people, and professors. Um, and in their work, in everyday life, they use rational, scientific rationality. When they start doing rituals, they switch. They start speaking a different language. So rituals make sense. So they would say, now it's getting cold. That is why we need to send winter clothes for ancestors. By the way, I didn't go into the regional difference of these rituals. So the ritual calendar varies from region to region. In the south, you send winter clothes and money for winter clothes to ancestors in like, winter solstice in December. In the north, we do it in early November. And I thought, why is that the case? And one person said, it's cold already in early November. So why wait till December to send winter clothes? It actually makes sense. And of course, it doesn't make sense, and it makes ritual sense. So, so in other words, that code switching works really beautifully. You learn through practice. You may not know the grammar, but you know how to say such things. And people learn from one another in that process. Going back, I realized I didn't answer the question about spirituality very quickly. The term spirituality can be quite um, complex. And what you are realizing we mean there are different things when we say spirituality. Sometimes it's, it's a mental practice, sometimes it's actual action. Um, so sociologists are actually beginning to look into spirituality and say what we mean by it. Because that's a term actually is not terribly easy to, to operationalize in, in the research because people mean such diverse things when we say spirituality has not been analyzed enough. But that's an important concept. I'll just make one final comment, um, and then we'll have to stop, I think. But I think one of the, the benefits of your work in a comparative perspective is that you're, you're moving, at least intellectually, from your training here in the West and your study of China and realizing that some of the categories regarding religion don't really work to describe the actual practical experience of people. 
I think the, the loop back hopefully will also get us to realize that the category of religion probably never worked very well here either. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I wonder in the last several centuries to what extent the scholars who invented and used the word religion, for instance, were paying attention to Orthodox Jews or Roman Catholics or Greek Orthodox. Because I think there are whole layers of participation and practice that seem to be ignored in the academy and not taken into account that now resonate much better. So some of the work that like Robert Orsi has done on the practical performance of religion in American Catholics would mesh very nicely with your work and realizing that the categories of belief and religion didn't even do justice to religion in the West, much less in which I is a nice closing of the, the circle. I couldn't agree with you more. That's very eloquently put. I completely agree. Um, and I feel there is a momentum yeah. in the field. Right. People working on this from different directions. Yeah. And instead of saying religion, the concept is problematic, it is problematic, we're, we can, we're constructing new concepts right. exactly. in order to do a good job understanding yeah. what's going on in the real world. Yeah. So I'm very hopeful. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, and thank you.